Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. a human being is how we come to trust people to love us and how we how we are about expressing the fact that we need someone you know do we are we able to say i need you with a lot of panic or are we able to do that calmly and with trust and we tend to respond very differently um, and broadly speaking there are these two main dysfunctions around the search for love. And one of them uh, we call the avoidant uh, personality. And the avoidant personality is basically someone who, when they are hurt or in need of someone, rather than saying it, they just go cold and get very uh, sort of macho, if you like. And and, um, they go off and they they read a book or they go jogging or they, they basically don't want to say that they need anyone because needing someone is so dangerous. And the other kind is the kind of controlling or anxious form of attachment where when you when you you need somebody um, but you're afraid that they don't need you you basically try and massively over control them you you blow up into a rage or you you get very procedural with them and keep asking them the same question or insist that they you know meet you at a certain hour or, or whatever and these are just um, you know common and garden bits of our you know, emotional uh, functioning that get warped and um, distorted uh, normally in childhood. And um, we have to go easy on, on ourselves and on each other because these problems are so common. Um, very few of us find it very easy to say things like, you know, I need you, I love you, you could hurt me desperately, please don't. You know, we, we tend to be just very weird around expressing all of these things. And um, it's good to keep that in mind and also to have a vague understanding of one's own particular neurosis in this area. common is fear and insecurity in long-term relationships. Is compatibility important for a good and lasting marriage? And what does it all mean to be ready for love? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. In the course of love, a novel, Alain de Botton writes, we might imagine that the fear and insecurity of getting close to someone would happen only once at the start of a relationship and that anxieties couldn't possibly continue after two people have made some explicit commitments to one another. Yet conquering distance and gaining assurances that we are needed aren't exercises to be performed only once. They have to be repeated every time there's a break, a day away, a busy period, an evening at work, for every interlude has the power once again to raise a question of whether or not we are still wanted. It's therefore a pity how hard it is to find a stigma-free and winning way of admitting to the intensity of our need for reassurance. Even after years together, there remains a hurdle of fear around asking for a proof of desire. But with a horrible added complication, we now assume that any such anxiety couldn't legitimately exist. 
Hence the temptation to pretend that reassurance will be the last thing on our minds. We might even, strangely, have an affair, an act of betrayal that is all too often simply a face-saving attempt to pretend we don't need someone. An arduous proof of the indifference that we reserve for and secretly address to the person we truly care about but are terrified of showing that we need and have been inadvertently hurt by. We are never through the requirement of acceptance. Well, this week, I had the very great pleasure of talking to Alain on his new novel, The Course of Love. So my name is Alain de Botton, and uh, I'm an author of some 14 books on uh, philosophical and other themes. Broadly speaking, I'm interested in emotional health and well-being, and I've explored this topic across many subject areas, uh, including relationships, um, the study of religion, um, the workplace, and um, modern society in general. Really well done on the book, Alan. It's um, an extraordinary read. It's both very insightful and also quite instructive. Um, I loved all your musings spread throughout the book. Uh, they're very contemplative. They're quite ironic in parts. But they have uh, they give you great hope uh, in a lot of different ways. I might actually start off by throwing you out some of your own words, if that's okay. Sure. Um, you write, the only people who can strike us as normal are those we don't know yet or know very well. The best cure for love is is to get to know somebody better. Do you agree with that? And within all of that, possibly have all these love stories and romantic movies and romantic poetry, has it screwed us up a bit to have this unrealistic expectation of what it's all about? The way we respond to other people is hugely formed by what we think of as normal. And um, in this sense, cultural works, films, etc., um, have a huge role to play in kind of warning us what other people are like. And it's fair to say that generally we're not that well prepared for the reality of other people or indeed ourselves. Um, We massively downplay how complicated we are and how tricky we are to get along with. And that, for that reason, we kind of, um, we, we, we're impatient at moments when we shouldn't be. And we think our lives have gone dramatically wrong because we're experiencing certain sorts of problems and unhappiness. So it's not so much that we should lower our expectations, it's that we should raise our um, level of preparedness for complexity um, because uh, anyone from close up is going to be a pretty daunting challenge um, and we just need to be ready for that. Do you think love is about weakness and frustration as well as the great highs? I think there's a very tender side of love which is about a sympathy for the difficulties that another person has meeting with the kind of challenges of life and a desire to help them with these uh, challenges. Um, it's not the only side of, of love. And indeed, what's striking about love is that, in a way, what we want is someone to be simultaneously strong and weak. What really touches us are the weaknesses or vulnerabilities of a basically very strong person. Um, the occasional strength of a basically weak person is a more terrifying proposition. Um, so we're, we're tricky in what we, what we want. We want someone to be touchingly vulnerable, um, but at the same time, um, pretty strong where it counts. Do you think we can come at love from a feeling of incompleteness, that somebody is going to make us whole or some aspect of love will give us this feeling of unity and togetherness and that we will finally become whole? Yes, I mean, I think that uh, very often the, um, 
the fantasy of love is is quite striking in its um, utopianism. I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes what's guiding us to love is is a feeling that we can be somehow made totally complete by another person. We will be totally understood. Our needs and desires, our unformulated hopes, all these will be translated, interpreted for us by another person who will be who will just make it all okay. And you've got to remember that for many of us, our templates of love come from early childhood when it really was possible for a time, for a parent sometimes, to make it all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we grow more and more complex as adults and our needs and desires grow ever more um, diffuse and, and grandiose, we, you know, the chances of someone making it all okay you know, are, are necessarily a bit reduced. And that's something we perhaps aren't as ready for as we should be. How would you describe the course of love? My book is really an attempt to draw the portrait of a very ordinary relationship, which is neither brilliant nor terrible. And I'm, in a way, correcting a bias that exists in the arts, where, on the whole, people are either you know, happily ever after and they're in bliss, or, or else they're sort of killing one another and it's a catastrophe and a tragedy. And I guess I wanted to explore the ordinary mid-range of relationships, which is where most of us spend our lives, um, where things are neither terrible nor, nor problem-free. And I wanted to take the reader very patiently through some ordinary moments of love, the challenges of love, and unpick them. Nothing very much happens in the book. So if you're after an adventure story, the, the, the book will be very boring. Um, but that's only because I'm locating real adventure in the smaller moments of kind of domestic life and hoping to make that as dramatic as the you know, slaying of lions and um, the defeating of spies in, in more traditional adventure stories. And one aspect of the book is loneliness and how that drives both characters in different directions, doesn't it? I think loneliness is a, a huge feature of relationships. Um, it's what gets us into relationships. If we, if we had no problem being on our own, I mean, it's an obvious point, um, much of our desperation to get together with people and many of our mistakes in getting together with people would be attenuated. I mean, we, we're never so vulnerable to bad relationships as when we're feeling extremely lonely. Um, and it has to be said that after a certain age, society does really basically leave people no other option but to try and hitch themselves with someone because there is no such thing anymore as kind of communal life. It's fine when you're at university, but um, by the time you're reaching your, your 30s, you know, very few people are hanging out in gangs or groups. Um, you're, you're really, you know, the couple becomes the predominant way to, to stave off the need for company or to, to, to kind of satisfy the need for company. So um, that, that's kind of dangerous. And what can happen, of course, is you get together with someone who leaves you feeling lonely within the relationship. And that's an even worse sort of loneliness because it's bad enough to be understood by no one, but it's even worse to be misunderstood by someone who's supposed to be in the role of the understanding partner. Yeah, there's, so, a, there's a bleakness to that, isn't there? That's right. I and mean, it's, it's sort of better to be on your own at that point um, than with someone who can't understand. Now, in one of your contemplations within the narrative, you muse on marriage and it made me laugh my head off. But it also brings up a lot of interesting dimensions to marriage. And you write marriage, a hopeful, generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't know yet who they are or who, who the other might be, binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully omitted to investigate. 
what were you trying to say there? And it sounds dreadfully gloomy. Well, I'm just trying to evoke really the kind of um, blindness with which most of us enter the state of marriage. It's an incredibly large commitment to make to someone. You know, most of us take more precautions, uh, you know, going out for a hike in the in, in the woods than we do, um, you know, setting out for a life with somebody. At least we check our equipment and uh, take a compass, etc. Most of us dive into um, lifelong commitment without really knowing very much at all. And that's just striking, given how committed we are to, to training and forecasting and preparing in other areas of life. We tend to believe that instinct will just get us through things. And that's very touching, but it's also really difficult. Um, and, you know, imagine if I said I was going to land an aeroplane by instinct or perform a surgical operation by instinct, you know, you'd think I was mad and you'd try and stop me. But when it comes to, to lifelong relationships and the production of children, people, you know, do just dive in. And so no wonder there are many disasters. We're, we're you know, we're, we're prey to a kind of romantic ideology that suggests that, you know, love is just a feeling rather than a skill that might need to be learned and acquired and worked on over years. How do you explain that, though? Because we take enormous risks and gambles by the partners that we choose. And sometimes, as you say, we go blindly in with all this enthusiasm and energy. And then we're left so despondent and disappointed and frustrated. And yet we can make these quite shrewd and somewhat conservative judgment calls in other areas of our life. It doesn't really make sense. Sure, it doesn't. No, I mean, I think partly we're uh, in flight from an older idea of the marriage of reason, which was something that all of us were kind of put through by our families and our communities for centuries, whereby, you know, the person you marry, you didn't marry for love. Marrying for love is a very new idea, relatively. It's, it's really an 18th century idea, and it's gradually spread around the world now. But, but it's still, you know, in historical terms, very new. And I think we're still in flight from some of the traumas of the kind of earlier arranged marriage of reason, which was cruel and unfair and short-sighted in many ways. And it was, you know, the pendulum swung in the other direction towards the marriage of feeling, where feeling wouldn't be examined at all and would simply, you know, just be something that we were supposed to surrender to um, rather than kind of examine or, or critically assess. So I think it's, it's just a case of the, the pendulum having swung a little bit too violently in the opposite direction. Now, one of the areas that you do develop upon, and I found it particularly interesting, was the nature of adultery and how, you know, how we get ourselves into these situations because whether we're either disappointed or frustrated or scoring a point with our partner or that we're maybe bored or feeling a bit undervalued or helpless, how we rationalise to ourselves why we've done the dirty deed and the nice little tidy story we, we sell ourselves and then how we piece it all together. You've a very amusing, um, you've a very amusing aside, and I might just throw it back at you. You you write, if love is to be defined as a genuine concern for well-being of another person, then it must surely be deemed compatible with granting permission for an often harassed and rather brown-beaten husband to step off the elevator on the first floor in order to enjoy ten minutes of rejuvenating Kalingas with a near stranger. Otherwise, it may seem that what we are dealing with is not really love at all, but rather a small and hypocritical possessiveness, a desire to make one's partner happy if, but only if, that happiness involves oneself. I'm not sure all people would agree with you on that point. 
No, no, I mean, it's a provocation, really, to, yeah. to, the, to the reader. Um, but it's it really, it's a very amusing provocation, I might add. But, <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you know, um, the issues of adultery go right to the heart of what we really understand by love and some of the kind of tensions in our understanding of it. You know, what, one of the paradoxes that I'm playing with is that um, one of the things that we do with people that we love is to feel that we own them and that we you know, trap them within our own cage. Um, and one view is that's terribly generous. And it's so nice of us. You know, what we're doing is kind of protecting them from a dangerous outside world. But the other thing we're doing, of course, is reducing their freedom massively. And, um, you know, we get offended if they're 10 minutes late, or if they haven't called us when they said they would, or indeed, if they spent the night with somebody else. Now, one could say, well, that's fair enough. But it's just worth asking whether it is really um, a sign of love. Uh, you know, what, what are we understanding by love? Um, and so these are some of the kind of paradoxes that um, the couple in my novel are kind of playing with and exploring. Um, I'm not saying by any means that um, you know, adultery is uh, uh, you know, a wonderful thing or indeed a, a kind of a spur to, to deeper love. But I think um, before saying it's wrong, um, we just need to understand, you know, what right means and why we're saying it's wrong and uh, what exactly the problem with it is. Can we talk about attachment theory? Uh, Rabbi and Kirsten go for some counselling. They're 17 years into their marriage and the cracks are showing. And you've some very interesting stuff on attachment theory. And you, 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 you piece together the work of psychologist John Balby. He looks at where the tensions and conflicts come within marriage and how they spring back from childhood. Uh, he wrote, I think, Separation Anxiety in 1959. He says either that there's two types of, um, two types of, let's say, characters within it. One is anxious attachment and the other type is avoidance attachment. And you, you write somewhere that 70% of patients seeking couples therapy will exhibit either one of two of these types of behaviour. And then you write, everything begins with small humiliations and letdowns. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, one of the basic things that defines a human being is how we come to um, trust people to love us and how we, how we are about expressing the fact that we need someone. You know, do we, are we able to say, I need you with a lot of panic or are we able to do that? calmly and with trust. And we tend to respond very differently. Um, And broadly speaking, there are these two main dysfunctions around the search for love. And one of them uh, we call the avoidant uh, personality. And the avoidant personality is basically someone who, when they are hurt or in need of someone, rather than saying it, they just go cold and get very uh, sort of macho, if you like, and and um, they go off and they, they read a book or they go jogging or they, they basically don't want to say that they need anyone because needing someone is so dangerous. And the other kind is the kind of controlling or anxious form of attachment where when you, when you, you need somebody, um, but you're afraid that they don't need you, you basically try and massively over-control them. You, you blow up into a rage or you, you get very procedural with them and keep asking them the same question or insist that they, you know, meet you at a certain hour or, or whatever. And these are just, um, you know, common and garden bits of our you know, emotional uh, functioning that get warped and um, distorted uh, normally in childhood. And um, we have to go easy on, on ourselves and on each other because these problems are so common. Um, very few of us find it very easy to say things like, you know, I need you, 
I love you, you could hurt me desperately, please don't. You know, we, we tend to be just very weird around expressing all of these things. And um, it's good to keep that in mind and also to have a vague understanding of one's own particular neurosis in this area.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, I'm unpacking the institution of marriage and the complications of love with philosopher, writer and education activist Alan de Botton, whose latest publication, The Course of Love, a novel, has just been published by Hamish Hamilton. In The Course of Love, Alain de Botton writes, It follows that successful intercourse depends on shutting down some of the overtly vivid associations between our romantic partners and their underlying parental archetypes. We might be aware at a conscious level that our partner is, of course, not a sexually forbidden parent, that they're the same person that they always were, and that in the early months we once did fun and transgressive things with them. We may in addition feel embarrassed and almost intolerably exposed when asking for sex of a partner of whom we are already so deeply dependent in a variety of ways. It can be an intimacy too far, against the backdrop of tense discussions around what to do with the finances and the school drop-off. Alain goes on to argue, it is the institution of marriage that is principally impossible, not the individual involved. I asked Alain, did he have to deconstruct his own marriage and take a hard look at things to fully wrestle with the storyline? Yes, I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I did very much look around me and in me and, you know, all of that. Um, and I think that's all to the good because, you know, in a way, I've been quite cynical in the book at various moments about aspects of relationships, but not in order to do down relationships. I'm on the side of love. I'm on the side of marriage. But I think the way that one's really on the side of all of this is is not to flinch from the really dark aspects. And I think we're still very sentimental about all of this. And I think that, you know, a lot of us just don't dare to look at the dark truths. Um, but I think we need to. And when we do, things brighten up a bit. Um, there's an awful lot of guff around love and um, a a lot of uh, um, sickly sweet sentimentality, which does us a, a real disfavour. So I think, um, uh, you know, in, in, in a way, a certain degree of pessimism is a, is a friend of love. And it's in that spirit that, that I wrote the book. How big or how significant an issue is transference in close personal relationships? It's something that you developed within the storyline and I find it very interesting. And I imagine we all suffer from it to some degree in different relationships, whether it's between siblings, whether it's between friends, as well as lovers. I mean, you know, one of the oddest things about human beings is that um, we sometimes have, all of us, areas where we respond with particular intensity to a situation. And we could say we're, we're a little bit touchy in, in certain areas. And these areas tend to um, be traceable back to something that happened in childhood. And so, you know, if, I don't know, your father was alcoholic, you're going to have some pretty strong feelings around alcohol in one sort or another. Um, if your mother was, um, you know, very controlling of you, affectionate, but always within certain parameters, you know, that's going to set off certain triggers when in adulthood, someone might seem to do something like that to you, etc. So we're all hypersensitive, if you like, in certain areas. And one of the odd things of getting to know someone is just stumbling upon these areas where you suddenly think, oh, whoa, that's, that's pretty intense kind of behavior. Um, the thing about this sort of phenomenon whereby the past starts to color and distort our behavior in the present, what psychologists call transference, is that generally people are really unaware of it for a long time. So they, 
they're not really aware that they're reacting with particular intensity. They just think they're normal. And this makes them very tricky to be around because it means that you can't have an honest conversation about what's going on. You know, you think, oh, I think you slightly overreacted there. And they go, no, I was totally normal. So it's that feeling that you're entirely normal combined with behavior which is less than normal, which actually makes people, you know, really hard to, to be around, which is why one of the best sort of background thoughts to have when you're in a relationship is I'm a little bit out of control. I'm a little bit dangerous and crazy. And so is my partner. And we just need to accept that as a sort of base truth about ourselves and not keep insisting that we're normal. Um, Because that gets really into, you know, path of vicious self-righteousness, which is not what you need. It takes an awful lot of courage and also confidence, though, to actually be able to land yourself within a marriage or relationship and be able to communicate those vulnerabilities and needs or maybe, you know, strip yourself back and where where your problems lie and be able to communicate that. Because it's certainly at the early days of any relationship, that's incredibly hard to do. Yes, I mean, partly it's because we've got this idea that, um, you know, we've all got to be perfect in love. And I think this is one of the things that makes uh, relationships, when you get a bit older, much easier. Because, you know, by that time, you've got no real illusions about yourself uh, or other people left, you can still love and you can still appreciate. Um, but you just know that everybody is, is quite tricky, you know, from close up. And that's not a surprise to you. But I think younger people uh, labor often under the idea that, you know, everybody's an angel. And, and then they get so uh, confused when the truth turns out to be a bit more complicated. So um, that's, that's something to look forward to. Do you think it's inevitable that we will always be misunderstood by our partners, lovers, husbands or whatever they are? Um, I think that if we expect to be always understood and that the person is always going to be on the same page as us, we will be in real trouble because, um, you know, we're just separate people. And what that means is that we can't expect our partners to feel as we do all the time. We desperately long to. And again, this goes back to early childhood when literally in in very early babyhood, um, babies don't know, they can't grasp the independent existence of their parents. I mean, they think their parents are extensions of themselves. Um, It's only very gradually that you learn that literally there is such a thing as a separate human being. And I think it's a lesson that reverberates down the years. And some of us are still learning it in our 30s, 40s and 50s, which is that really you can't, you know, First of all, you you, you can't expect that people are going to understand you by instinct alone. You're going to need to explain yourself, and that might be quite painful. Um, There's a chapter in my book on sulking, and sulking, I think, is the outcome of a peculiar romantic belief that other people should just know without us necessarily doing them the favor of explaining um, what what it is we're going through, what we're upset about. And Um, sulking over time can drive any husband or wife demented. It can bring up a lot of hostility and intolerance, can't it? Yes. I mean, sulking is, I mean, it's quite comedic. It's quite sweet, really, because it, it springs from a very you know, vulnerable childlike place, which is, you know, if the partner loves me, they need to understand me, even if I haven't explained. And if indeed, if I have to explain, it means that they're not very nice, because it's a romantic sense that explanation is superfluous in a genuine relationship. It isn't. But you can begin to think that way. And again, very unfortunate, very counterproductive. What about fantasy and sexual drive and imagination? It's a difficult one to navigate, no matter what age you're at. And in within marriage, things can change, can't they? 
I think one of the interesting things is that um, the closer you are emotionally to someone, sometimes the harder it can be to have sex with them. And that's, you know, a long observed thing. Um, and when people say things like, oh, we can't be bothered to have sex anymore, or, uh, you know, sex is a bit boring with my partner, that seems a little bit too innocent. I think very often the reason why couples don't have sex with uh, their partners anymore is because they are so close and their lives are so enmeshed in all sorts of ways, they can't uh, generate the distance that is actually necess- a necessary part of good sex. I think that good sex is, is based on a hunger for closeness mixed in with an experience of distance and foreignness. And that's why sex in the early days is so exciting because you're doing something very intimate with someone who is at the same time very unknown. And that combination is, is bewitching. But the more you get to know someone, the more your lives are enmeshed, the more you can't get the necessary distance to um, uh, kind of, you know, drive the energy for um, uh, something that's that, that's sexy. And that's why you find these odd situations where people will in fantasy imagine the gardener, the stranger, the, you know, the milkman um, as, as a sort of suitable target for sexual fantasy. And you think, well, why? Why this stranger about which you know nothing? And, you know, but in a way, you need that foreignness in order to kind of release you from some of the inhibitions that come from being so closely enmeshed with another person. And maybe also you don't have the restrictions or what you feel are the restrictions of having the label of mummy or daddy on it. Now, I'm not a parent, uh, let alone married, but that can, I, I know from friends and family, can really cramp your style, you know. That's right. I mean, couples have to do so many things together. They have to run a household. They have to do budgeting. They have to, you know, take care of each other's families. They have to go on holiday. And of course, they have to be these co-parents, all of which are completely in conflict with this other thing that they're supposed to be doing, which is having sex. And we kind of handily imagine that everything's going to fit together, but it might not. And, um, and, and so there are, you know, these inevitable areas of, of kind of tension where you feel that the person who should be your, your best friend, your co-chauffeur, your common accountant, etc., isn't also the ideal sexual partner. Now, Elaine, I laughed my head off when I read The Prestige of Laundry. And um, I don't think I've had a cup of coffee with any of my female friends in the last 10 or 15 years where some of the issues you develop upon in the book cropped up. You write, the difficulties of modern parenting can be in part blamed on the way prestige is distributed. Couples are not only besieged by practical demands at every level or at every thought. They are also inclined to think of these demands as humiliating, banal and meaningless and therefore likely to be adverse to offering pity or praise to one another or themselves just for enduring them. I mean, that's right. One of the oddest things about the way we look at love and have looked at love through the kind of romantic prism which is so dominant in our society is that we, we, we tend not to sort of give space to the idea that love is quite a practical business. I mean, if two people went on a date and they said, oh, we, you know, we had a wonderful time, we talked about laundry the whole evening, people would go, oh, that's not a very romantic couple, you know, that's not very romantic, because we, we don't associate laundry with romanticism. Um, and, you know, there's no love poems about people doing the washing together or the washing up together. Um, it's just not something that features. And yet, of course, the, the good management of a relationship is hugely dependent on all sorts of practicalities going well. And so, again, we enter relationships often impatient about something we've got to be much more patient about, which is the practical side of life. And we tend to think of it as an insult, a violation, a sense that our lives have gone wrong, whereas in fact it's just inevitable part of 
uh, a couple's life. Do you think there can be such a thing as healthy resentment? Do you think that actually exists? You know, like whether it's in friendships, uh, professional relationships or in marriages, that it, resentment comes into every life scenario to some degree, doesn't it? Yes, but I mean, I think the amount that we're going to resent someone is very linked to expectations and our sense of what is normal. And I think that some of what's made modern couplehood difficult is that we've um, suggested now that both men and women are responsible at once for the emotional side of the family and the financial side. Um, and so, you know, men very often will say things like, in private, they will say things like, um, you know, my wife expects me to do everything. Um, I've got to be, you know, a great dad and a great money earner, etc. And the wives will say, you know, I've got to be everything. I've got to be, you know, mum around the house, uh, great emotional support. And also, I've got this really demanding job. Um, and, you know, people talk about work-life balance. Well, we've definitely and definitively seem to have lost that one. Um, and so I think, again, we, we, we need to go easy on ourselves because we've We've given ourselves such complex roles nowadays. Um, what it means to be, you know, man or a woman is is so freighted with with difficult demands. I'm just wondering, though, do you believe people who, I suppose, put a nice veneer on things and, you know, that they have this uncomplicated marriage and this, whether it's this perfect marriage, not, not necessarily too adoring, but wonderfully supportive all the time. Do you believe that actually exists? And is there a lot of, do you think we sometimes project to the outside world this, you know, we communicate that our marriages are fantastic because ultimately we can't face that there is such a thing as imperfect love. Mm. Um, I think I think that's right. And I think, of course, it, it, it does make things um, very difficult for everyone. Um, I mean, there's nothing that raises more cheer and more laughter and more, you know, general well-being than a confession that things are not going well um, in, <laughs> in one's relationship. I mean, it just cheers everybody up, or indeed in one's career. Um, you know, we love a problem, and not because we're mean, um, but because we ourselves are so lonely with our problems. Uh, and I think that, that gives you the evidence you need to show that, of course, you know, these things are very difficult. I mean, why do we love a celebrity divorce or, uh, you know, trouble? Because we're so lonely with our troubles, and we have troubles. So, yes, I think the, the actual level of happiness that most of us experience is way below what we advertise to the outside world. And we do that advertising because we don't want to seem freakish. And everybody's in on a kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of escalation of their sort of virtues and happiness. But do you think we learn within our marriages as we progress within our marriage, our marriages? Well, we don't have to learn, but there is definitely the possibility of learning. And I think there are couples who will say things like, you know, we get on better, so much better now than 15 years ago. And that's so nice to hear because the normal narrative, the romantic narrative is, you know, we were madly in love and it was just fantastic at the beginning. And now, you know, we're a bit grumpy with one another. Whereas actually there's another model, which is we wildly misunderstood one another and we're full of peculiarities and, you know, we're children. And gradually we kind of grew up and grew to understand one another 
another and grew to know how to communicate. So that's the more hopeful vision of marriage. And it's, it's the vision of marriage that I put forward in my novel. And it's, that's really what the novel's about. The novel is the story of two people who are very well-meaning but don't have the first clue how to love, who gradually, gradually come to understand themselves and the nature of loving a little bit better. And I think that's a very hopeful story that maybe we don't hear enough of in our societies. And what about the ruts and the kind of mediocre sex and the exhaustion and, I suppose, boredom that comes with any relationship? Well, again, the more we can face up to it and um, uh, discuss it and turn it into black humour, you know, the better it is. Um, There's nothing worse than two sort of ardent romantics who think, well, you know, it should be brilliant all the time. And they're sort of quietly furious that it isn't. the more two people can say, huh, you again, as they face each other in the bathroom, with a touch of humor um, and a lighthearted teasing, the better it can be. So it, it all depends on the starting point. And I think cathartic darkness is really important to a couple uh, negotiating the very long term. Now, at the end of the novel, you write um, why are you give your kind of philosophy of marriage, uh, our philosophy of love. And you write Rabbi and Kirsten are ready to be married because they are aware deep down that they are not compatible. The partner truly best suited to us is not the one we miraculously happen to, um, to share every taste with, but the one who we can negotiate differences in taste with intelligently and with good grace. Rather than some notional idea of perfect complementarity, it is a capacity to tolerate dissimilarity that is true. That is the true marker of the right person. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It shouldn't be a precondition. They're powerful words now. I think the the reason why I mention that is that I think we live in a world where people tend to believe that relationships will be easy if we find the right person. And so there's a kind of a national obsession with finding the right person, normally with the help of sophisticated technology. And you kind of ditch people and throw them on the rubbish heap because they're not compatible enough. And I think that's a kind of arms race to disaster because you know, no one will ever be completely compatible in the sense that have exactly the same tastes and exactly agree with everything we say, etc. So the, the so-called right person isn't somebody who just is like us. It's somebody who isn't like us, but knows how to deal with the differences, um, you know, intelligently and wisely. And that's something that we all need to learn to get good at. So I think, you know, Tinder culture, with all its sort of throwaway enthusiasm is, is really doing us a, a disservice because it, it's encouraging us to think that um, every problem we hit in a relationship is a problem of compatibility um, and that we will miraculously solve that problem of compatibility if only we move on and find this ideal, ideally compatible person. So we keep kind of looking for them everywhere and they just don't really exist. I mean, of course, there are some people who are slightly worse or better uh, compatible. But, you know, I'm attracted to the original Christian idea that, uh, you know, a good person knows how to love anyone, um, that there's some kind of common quality that really loving someone means kind of seeing through them at, at the kind of uh, less appealing uh, sides and, uh, you know, deducing their real intentions and seeing, seeing the good beneath the, the slightly tricky and Aspect. for those who say that the institution of marriage is is flawed, what do you say to that? Are those types of negative comments on marriage? Is marriage about endurance? It's about shared shared expectations and then hard work. 
Um, yes, I mean, hard, hard work, it sounds a bit abstract. So one doesn't really know what that means. I mean, it's not, it's not like plowing a field. Um, I mean, really... Well, what, patience, deep patience, maybe. Yes, yes, and, and sort of forgiveness and, and kind of radical honesty, and, um, but also laughter. You know, the, the day that you can move from thinking of your partner as just an idiot to being a, a lovable idiot in a way that many comedy shows show us, you know, think of The Office where David Brent is kind of an idiot, but he's a lovable idiot. Um, what an achievement of love that is. Um, and, you know, we need to, to take those kind of moves quite seriously and um, practice them with, with our partners. So lastly, Ellen, have you looked at your own marriage anyway differently since writing this book? I think I've become a, a, a better husband um, and our marriage is, is now better. My wife says that she's definitely going to stay with me till the paperback. We've got a deal. Um, and no, we, we, I joke. Um, but, but no, it, yes, it has helped. Um, I, I think marriage is something you can get better at. It sounds weird, but I mean, if you can get better at ice skating or carpentry, why not get better at marriage? And so, you know, I've been working through some of my issues and um, hopefully helping the reader to do the same with theirs. Philosopher and writer Alan de Botton. The Course of Love, a novel, is published by Hamish Hamilton and retails for just under 18 euros in hardback. I can also recommend The Art of Travel, Status and Anxiety, The Consolations of Philosophy, and Religion for Atheists, a non believer's guide to the uses of religion. 
by Alan de Botton. Again, all published by Hamish Hamilton. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Roland Brannock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with some sensible advice from the great Alain de Botton. The courage not to be vanquished by anxiety, not to hurt others out of frustration, not to grow too furious with the world for the perceived injuries it heedlessly inflicts, not to go completely crazy and somehow to manage to preserve in a more or less adequate way through the difficulties of married life. This is true courage. This is a heroism in a class of its own. Good night. All Newsalk 106 to 108.